basically talking to people about censorship today as our YouTube account. You might say censored, some would say moderated, some kind of algorithm issue, but it really highlighted the need for decentralization of your or a corporation's you know, public facing identity. Um, so just right off the bat, I mean, do you have any experience or thoughts about about things like that? Well, of course, as a Bitcoiner, I naturally don't like central uh, censorship. Um, I think that one of Bitcoin's core value props and one that attracted to uh, it to me initially uh, was Bitcoin's censorship resistance against, you know, people purchasing illegal items online. I think that that was a good testament to Bitcoin's resiliency back in the 2012-2013 era with Silk Road, right? Like Silk Road demonstrated that this was censorship resistant, even for, you know, things that people widely perceived as like, you know, very illegal, right? Like different types of illegal drugs. So I think that censorship is fundamental to being a Bitcoiner, uh, thinking about censorship and embracing non-censorship enabling technologies. So um, for me, I think that, uh, you know, as a Bitcoiner, obviously I care a lot about that. And as a content creator, I also care a ton about this too where I'm on Twitter a lot. And if Twitter just froze my account tomorrow, I'd lose all of my followers. I'd lose all of the work I've done to talk about Bitcoin. And this is a really, really, you know, uh, scary thing to think about because in a second, based on someone's, you know, bad lunch they had, or they don't like a tweet you had, they could, they could ban you. And so evidently this happened to you guys, you know, um, over the last couple of days where you, I'm, so I, I don't know what the issue was they had with you all, but I've seen this happen over and over again, where people get their account frozen or blocked or, or banned or shadow banned. And so uh, for me, obviously, that's like top of my mind, both being a Bitcoiner and content creator. And I've already taken steps to mitigate that a little bit, where I'm, I'm cross channel. So I've got an audience on YouTube and LinkedIn. And then uh, as well, I've built on my email list, an email list is one of the last bastions of like, almost decentral, almost censorship resistant communication. Um, while it's not really censor, it's not really censorable. You can still have different email clients filter us spam. So Gmail mm -hmm. could still flag all the emails coming from, you know, danheld.com as spam. So it's semi decent, you know, semi decentralized or somewhat censorship resistant. So that's kind of like why I've been pointing so many people over to my newsletter over the last year is, you know, if, if I got banned from all the platforms, I still have 30,000, uh, you know, 30,000 subs to my email that I can talk to directly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an amazing thing. And, you know, maintaining those lists is, is no easy task and, and making sure that um, the provider that that holds onto those lists for you isn't also censoring you. Um, I download the list occasionally to make sure that if they ever kick me off, I've got that got that list. Well, let me ask you this: where, like, where are you keeping that list? I'm assuming it's not on some sort of like web supported platform like Google Docs, or is it? No, no, it's on my external hard drive, uh, physical external hard drive. I'm I'm old school like that. Okay, Respect. that's a good way to do it. Yeah, air gapped. I mean. This is important, and this has come up a couple times today. Just um, the importance of you know running a Bitcoin node, a Lightning node, and just learning how to learning more about servers. Because I don't think outright, I don't think many people understand how their information is transmitted like across the internet at all these days. I mean, myself included. There's a lot of learning to be done on that front, just as a population. 
Yeah, what, what's interesting is there's a lot of people, and I think some of this these efforts are aligned around like Web3. And, and look, I know as Bitcoiners, we feel a certain way about it. I think that, you know, Web3 has aggregated that sentiment and want to, to move to platforms that aren't censored, right? That have like better incentive alignment and stuff like that. Now, is Web3 or you know, does Web3 enable that TBD, right? Well, we'll see if that experiment pans out or not. And I think Bitcoiners bring up good criticisms. But needless to say, the core ethos of what they're shooting for, I think we all want inherently of like, I don't like that I could be censored on Facebook or Twitter. I don't like that my account could be taken down on YouTube. And, you know, I think it's it's really tricky though, because I'm not sure how feasible it is to build these, you know, to build these new systems that are truly decentralized. When you host videos on YouTube, that's a lot of data. You know, like you're just one content creator and there's millions of content creators. So that's where I'm like pretty skeptical that Web3 or a blockchain could solve that problem, right? And I think that's where, you know, I think a lot of Bitcoiners have really good criticisms of like, you're misaligning incentives and like, are these things really decentralized or not? And so for me, I'm like, you know, I think like we should try to strive to be as as distributed as possible. I think, um, you know, I'm a big torrenter, or at least I was back in the day. <laughs> That's why I have so many external hard drives. <laughs> so, <laughs> I used to torrent so much and I put them on these external hard drives, uh, you know, because I, I torrented tons of stuff. I, you know, went down the path of torrenting and downloading like libraries of books of like different like technical manuals, just kind of like a, a weird hoarder mentality in a way, but also one of like, I believe information, you know, in, in this, it shouldn't be censored. And it was really cool to tap into that with torrenting, right? Because you could torrent anything um, and you could download it, even if it was like censored in your country. Um, and that, that's, you know, that started with like movies and songs, but you could also download all sorts of manuals or whatever else you wanted. So for me, I, I think that technology, like that's like really cool. Um, that's, yeah. So for, you know, for Bitcoiners, I think most Bitcoiners would agree, like, we want a world like that, where we want to move away from censorship and any way we can enable that is ideal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think we're getting closer and closer to it. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical as well, like you said, I don't, I don't know. Um, I've heard, you know, about Rumble and a couple other platforms, but I mean, we've seen Vimeo come as as a, as a kind of big social platform and be reduced to kind of a place just kind of niche for filmmakers to preview their work and to download it for each other things like that. Um, I don't really know what the next step forward is. I'm just bullish on the fact that more people are going to have hands-on experience with servers because Bitcoin adoption. I mean, the real adoption seems to only go up. I know we, we lose a lot of retail investors, but people who put Bitcoin in cold storage, I've never heard of one giving up on that. I mean, maybe they've lost it back in the day, but at these prices, I don't know anyone who's, you know, becoming yeah. back, going back to fiat after that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to see this play out in terms of like private key management. You know, I've been around a long time and I, honestly, I'm like partially just lucky I didn't fuck up my cold storage, right? Like, this is before mnemonics, before like 12 to 24 word backups. You know, before it was it was a lot harder to preserve your backup. And there were there were no metal backups, like CryptoTag, for example. Like there was no metal backups or like no one, you could stamp it into metal if you wanted to, but no one made it like consumer friendly. Um, and, you know, then like you had like the treasures and ledgers come out. 
Um, and I think that these were big moments of like usable cold storage. Um, and that really kind of like having Bitcoiners lean into that, you know, push self custody, I think is really cool because private key management is critical for all of this to work. Um, and that's where what's interesting is like in the web three DeFi world, they also push private key, like self custody, but they push it in a really, I think like semi reckless way where they push it into like browser, like your MetaMask, like browser, you know, that yeah. your private keeping in the browser and like, that's really risky. I mean, for me, I'm an old Bitcoiner who likes to put it in cold storage. And so, you know, I think that it's interesting because Web3 Web and, and, and DeFi, that pu pushes people to be self-custody, but it pushes them, I think, into a bad version of self-custody um, where it's so convenient just to like open up your MetaMask, boom, your funds are gone. You know, this happens all the time. Just happened like Ryan Selkos a couple of weeks ago, for example. And we've seen so many on Twitter, right? So... Um, I think Bitcoiners do it the right way. You, you encourage self-custody and you encourage it in a way where it's, it's you know, uh, self-custody, but in a, in a cold storage manner and, and a proper way to store it. And that also kind of feeds in, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit to like a conversation that I see a lot of times uh, specifically, and I'll, I'll name names, Robinhood and Venmo, how you can't withdraw your Bitcoin. And like that limitation is almost like a, a false idea of like oh you own no you don't own bitcoin not not until you can actually put it in some sort of self-contained storage system and typically that being a cold storage wallet but to, to your point exactly that and i think one thing i love seeing about the bitcoin community is there's always this conversation and push once once it clicks in someone's head that they don't hoard that idea it's let me get the word out there that hey I bought way too much Bitcoin on Robinhood. I messed up. I can't actually withdraw it. Don't make my mistake and blast this out to as many people. And then it's very quickly picked up on. And I, I love that about our community to make sure that everyone can continue to learn and get better. Um, I guess beyond Robinhood, Venmo, what, what are apps that people use regularly that you just refuse to touch as far as Bitcoin transactions go? Is there an app that you're like, not with a 10-foot pole? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, <laughs> there's a lot of products that I wouldn't want to touch. Um, and it naturally working at Kraken, some of my competitors, you shouldn't use those. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, again, not your keys, not your coins being the mantra that Bitcoiners say that, that really rings true to me, you know, in terms of like, I love that the community just chants that constantly. Um, I will caveat that like, you don't throw someone in the deep end of the pool and hope they swim. So make sure that if your mom or grandma or, or granddad, you're getting them into Bitcoin, don't yeah. give them, I mean, if you sit down with them and help them do it and you help them store the backup, sure. But don't just throw them in the deep end and be like, you got to do this or you suck. It's, <laughs> you know, it's a recipe for like them losing all their money, um, which I've actually seen happen to a couple of people over the long time I've been in the space. So, you know, put on some training wheels, put on some floaties. If you want to help a friend get into the deep end of the pool and then, uh, you know, I, so I think like, yeah, not your keys, not your coins, definitely push that, but like, make sure you give them some training wheels. Um, you know, products that I, I don't like in the space, um, you know, I, th oh, I mean, there's so many I don't like. I, let's talk about the ones I like, you know, the ones yeah. I like, the ones that I think they're doing it well would be like Blue Wallet. I think Blue Wallet's awesome. Uh, Get Umbral. Uh, so Umbral does a fantastic job with like, uh, you know, node management. 
Um, and I think that's really cool too, because, you know, to Alex's point, like teaching Bitcoiners, you know, private key management with cold storage, plus like running their own node, you're getting them closer to like running their own server in a way. And so, you know, GitUmbral has a bunch of like other dApps or like decentralized apps in there that allow you to do like secure messaging and other things or like self-hosted, um, like photo backups for your phone, stuff like that. So I think those are really cool. Um, and I think those are doing it right. And I think Umbral, they really, their user experience is phenomenal. Um, I think they do a great job at, at kind of like being the portal to the Bitcoin network. Um, at least that's how I would pitch it if I were them. So I think that's a fantastic product. Blue Wallet, um, Moon Wallet as well, f- phenomenal. Both of those are really good. Um, you know, some of these wallets, it's kind of funny, like, you know, coin control wasn't really a common feature until recent, until pretty recently on, on a lot of wallets and a lot of wallets still don't have coin control. So, um, you know, I think like that, um, you know, Wasabi wallet, by the way, is awesome. I'm really excited for the, I don't know, has their V2 launched yet? I haven't seen it yet, but I think they've been, they've been kind of teasing a V2 like version two, that's like been like a huge update. So I'm excited to see it. Um, so yeah, those are some of like my favorite wallets. Um, you know, Umbral is awesome. And then, yeah. And then, you know, I'd say like, um, you know, the, I'm really excited to see what the, uh, what Jack Dorsey and his team is doing with TBD number, 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 in terms of a DEX. Um, I work at a centralized exchange, Kraken, where we have all of your information and we can, you know, we are forced by law to collect that information and censor if the government tells us to. Um, it's, I think that's kind of why I like working at Kraken though, is like Jesse knows this and has publicly talked about it. Jesse encourages Kraken customers to self-custody. I think that's really cool and very genuine from Jesse where Jesse goes, hey guys, we have to do these things if the government asks. So put yourself in a position where we can't, you know, you've moved your funds off of the exchange. So I think Kraken, you know, we do encourage that. Our security team as well talks about like different security flaws and different hardware devices and security issues with other exchanges or products. So we do try to push a security first culture of, of like, hey, self-custody and do it, do it safely. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. And you're a lot, I feel like closer um, to the beat of the, the web three and some of the stuff going on in the, in the wider crypto space than, than I think I would be. I, I kind of have t- tunnel vision. I'm just like, Bitcoin only kind of guy I would not call myself a, a maximalist or even really a Bitcoiner but I just 
Bitcoin is what I understand. That's what that's what I'm focused on. So I was wondering, I mean, this is, I think, still relevant. I think people are still talking about Web3. I've heard you mention it a couple of times. How would you define it? What is it? <laughs> I just I just wrote about this in the, the Held Report, uh, my newsletter that I write nice. weekly. And I wrote about Jack Dorsey's fight with VCs and kind of covered his core root problem with like Web3. And, and it started with a definition of Web3. Well, there's the definition and then there's reality. It's kind of like Instagram versus reality. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those memes yep. <laughs> where yes. someone looks really good on Instagram and then they look a little, little messed up on uh, reality. So same thing. Uh, what it stands for, what people think it is, is it is typically decentralization leads to lack uh, decentralizing control, um, more equitable allocation of ownership. So having a token that allocates ownership in a way that's more equitable than a Web2 solution um, and a couple other functions. That's, that's, what they, that's what most people would believe it represents. Um, then you've got reality where um, you've got you know, heavy allocation of the token to venture capital firms. Um, so it's not exactly an equitable dis distribution. And you also have these protocols that are not decentralized at all. They have like very centralized command and control structures or the ability to censor. So they're not really an improvement on the existing system. So, you know, Web3 as defined by them is Web3 is, you know, uh, a structure where the control is distributed and more equitable ownership of the value generated in the protocol. Reality, not really for about 99% of these things. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, the, the definition is somewhat ambiguous as well. I think people kind of slap it on any pitch deck that they pitch because that'll get them 30% more valuation when they go fundraise. So kind of TBD on, on what it really means. It's somewhat of an, and, you know, a term that's not super well-defined. I think um, kind of along those lines, I guess, something we were talking to Jimmy about, and I would just, I'd love to hear your take on too. Um, what does ownership mean to you? Um, and to give that question some context, I mean, to me, ownership means Bitcoin. It's the only thing that, that can't really be governed or, or taken from me or, um, impaired by outsiders. So yeah, in that context, I mean, what does ownership mean to you? Yeah. Ownership, I would say is, you know, you've got the private key ownership, right? Which is your claim over a certain digital asset. Um, and then I think what, what you're talking about is the, the network enforcing the rules that will keep ownership of those specific assets. And that's why I hold Bitcoin is I, I believe, you know, with uh, blockchains don't automatically solve real world problems. Uh, they still interface with humans. It's a there's a social dynamic to this. And when we look at Bitcoin's monetary policy, the 21 million hard cap, that monetary policy is enforced by social consensus. If we all tomorrow decided to change Bitcoin's protocol to make 22 million, you know, and there was the remainder who believed in the 21, but it was a super small group. That would, that would be Bitcoin, but that probability is infinitesimally small because the Bitcoin community would have to want to shoot themselves in the foot, which doesn't make any financial sense, right? So the Bitcoin community's culture is entirely around this 21 million hard cap and the preservation of that monetary policy. With humans, time builds trust. We don't, we're not computers. We can't just like download trust. We have to, that has to be baked in through time of those rules not changing and us believing that the rules will never change. And that increases the probability that it will never be changed. 
Um, so some people call that anti-fragility or reflexivity. You can kind of loosely tie those together here. We're like time builds trust, which builds value, which builds trust, which builds value. Um, and same with anti-fragility, the social social consensus around never changing the rules becomes more and more strong over time. Um, and so when we look at Bitcoin in contrast to protocols like Ethereum, Ethereum has changed their monetary policy many times. And so we have to trust that they won't change it again or that they won't change it in a way that's unfavorable. And that's where when I hold digital assets, I want to be sure that, you know, one, I, I have the private key that owns the asset, but that exists on all these, all these protocols. But two, the rules of the protocol and the enforcement of those rules are, are so set in stone that I can, I can very confidently store my value in that for a long period of time. And that to me is Bitcoin. Uh, whereas we don't see that happening with the other protocols. We have to trust. As Satoshi says, the core root of the problem is trust. We have to trust that the central banks won't change the monetary policy or that bankers won't gamble with the economy or, or lend our Bitcoin out uh, where there's, or, or lend the dollars out to where there's barely any left in the, in the bank. With Bitcoin, we don't have to trust anyone again. And so Bitcoin's rules reinforce that trust over time. And that's why I think Bitcoin stands in very stark contrast to any other protocol in the space. Yeah. You hit the head on the nail right there, man. It's it, without a doubt. I mean, I, I always like to, to bring up and remind people like Satoshi was involved for the first four years for the, up until about the first halving Satoshi was very much there and Bitcoin was centralized and he even recognized this, the issue of that. And I believe in his final update push, part of it was that it's essentially no one, unless you had a majority of the network, no one was going to be able to rewrite or recreate or change what he had essentially created. And I always, I always like to think at least, or, or believe I, I'm a movie guy. I like to romanticize real life because it just makes sure. like more fun. Um, like he knew he had to, or he or she or whoever knew that they couldn't be a public figure because at a certain point, someone is going to go after this individual if you have that control and power. Even if you are the perfect person and you are not gonna use or abuse that power, some, some entity, some aggressive person, some foreign sure. nation is gonna come after you and then they have that control that you otherwise had designed this protocol to not have. So that yeah. was... But no, please. Decentralization exists on multiple levels, you know, and the founder is a part of that. And Satoshi very early on realized like his found his founder status and his ownership of the protocol could unduly influence the outcome of the protocol and took very careful steps. You know, even in the beginning, there weren't that many people working on it. So yes, Satoshi had a, a, a bit more influence, right? Because he had to, but he made sure that it, he was pseudonymous. There was no name to associate with him. He eventually left too when he felt that the Bitcoin protocol could could you know exist by itself without his without his help without his gardening if you will, and um, same with his ownership. You know, uh, we believe he has around a million Bitcoin if we take on certain on-chain analysis as truth, but he's never moved those, and and that that again would also be a centralizing factor of like people constantly critiquing his ownership level or that that ownership gives him power or financial influence over the protocol. So yeah, Satoshi took every step possible to remove himself as an influence, that an overly strong influence when he could. I really hope, Pete, if you're watching this, I hope we got all the Satoshi facts right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Pete, Pete's an amazing his, historian, by the way. He works at Kraken with me and we've known each other for, man, almost, almost seven, maybe seven years, eight years. Yeah, Pete, Pete's definitely the Bitcoin historian. I, 
he, he can fact check this later, but uh, he's he's the he's the guy I'd go to for any any old Satoshi facts. So what has changed since? Uh, I mean, you know, you've been in this space for years. Uh, you know, just internally, like with you, what what feelings around Bitcoin sentiment? I know, just the ideas of what Bitcoin is and what it can do have changed tremendously. So. Yeah. And, and by the guy, by the way, guys, this has to be my last question because I do have to hop. I do have a, I do have a job. <laughs> so I, uh, I do have to hop after this, but yeah, narrative wise. So there's a couple different things here. One, I would say the early days were very much tinkerer types. Um, I built my first app called zero block and zero block was the most popular app in Bitcoin at the time back in 2013, because everyone was building something. Everyone had their own app. Everyone had their own company. Everyone was trying to build something to help out the, the community. And that was, that was pretty cool. I think that that was like a ton of fun um, because it was very much like a builder's mindset. I, I would also say I kind of miss the Bitcoin only era. You know, like there's always altcoins, but they were more, it was always the narrative was Bitcoin, you know, and really strongly Bitcoin for a long time. So that was kind of a fun kind of era too. And, and in that same era, this is like 13 through 15, um, you also had like a very small group of people who would go to the meetups and, and uh, conferences across the world. So you kind of knew everybody if you were <laughs> if you were there back then, because there was only a couple hundred people who'd go to these conferences, even the biggest ones. So that, that was kind of fun. There was like a more of a camaraderie in that, that smaller group. Um, and narrative wise, too, I think I think this is where there was probably the biggest misalignment. Narrative wise, it was Bitcoin is meant for payments. And uh, like Bitcoin is meant to be like a digital cash, like dollars in your pocket. I think that that narrative has been largely debunked and I was really vocal against it over the years. So I'm glad to see that happen because I think that narrative had zero product market fit or protocol market fit. Um, I think it's, it was very misguided. It led to a lot of misallocation of capital, resources, mindshare. Um, whereas like Bitcoin as digital gold is a, a narrative that like, was it Bill, Bill Mayer um, said I have half of my assets are in Bitcoin and Ray Daldio talks about Bitcoin. I mean, that's Bitcoin solves the digital gold problem really well. Um, and so I think that that's been a cool shift. You know, the sad shift, like I said, it was like it, the community was kind of small tinkerer types and now it's not much bigger. You know, on a positive side of that though, like it's incredible that we're seeing movie stars and football players and top investors in the world recognize Bitcoin. I mean, we were considered a lunatic fringe group for a long time. So to see Bitcoin be this big and to see it hit the mainstream, I've waited my whole life for this, or at least since I found Bitcoin, which was about 10 years ago. So I couldn't be happier that we're experiencing this moment. And I'm, I'm excited for Bitcoin's culture and Bitcoin's you know, tent, if you will, to, be, to have more and more people underneath it. Um, you know, conversely, I'm excited for that. And I support everyone's thoughts. And, you know, if we're all community Bitcoin, awesome. I did tweet out the other day, like, guns and Bitcoin go together really well. And a lot of my followers didn't like that. <laughs> I'm still going to say it because I like guns and I'm from Texas and I'm a libertarian. But I'm definitely noticing a shift in the culture where it's not really libertarians anymore. It's a lot of other people. So that's that's been interesting to observe. Because I kind of consider it like, well, once you go Bitcoin, you kind of become libertarian. Doesn't seem like that's the case as much anymore. Seems like a lot of people still hold their either conservative or liberal values uh, getting into Bitcoin. Um, whereas like the early community was super libertarian and we felt like everyone was going to become a libertarian 
once they got in. So yeah, that, that gun tweet, man, there was like a couple hundred replies of people being very <laughs> anti-gun, which I'm like, interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, anyways, <laughs> I, I'm excited. I, I think that, you know, to kind of recap, I'm excited that the tent of Bitcoin is getting much larger. It's becoming mainstream. And Jack Dorsey, by the way, is helping with this with like Square Title um, and all these other things that he's working on. He under, in Cash App, like Cash App understands financial culture. And so Jack is trying to weave Bitcoin into financial culture and it's the mainstream culture. So I think Bitcoin's in an era where I'm, I'm pretty particularly excited in, even if it means that everyone doesn't share my values, that they, we all agree upon Bitcoin's value that it brings to the world. And so it seems like we're on that precipice of like Bitcoin going to, you know, hundred million people that believe in it and store value in it to a billion. And that's, I've waited my whole life for this. Super bullish way to end it. I'm super excited. Um, yeah, listen, I'm glad um, Bitcoin brought us all together. All the viewers, we're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us, Dan Held. I hope we can have you on again sometime. Thanks for joining us on short yeah. notice. Thanks for having me, y'all. Cheers. Yeah. 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 Yeah.